Father, you are holy, and this is something we prize. We are sinful, and this is something we despise. You created us like you, to live in perfect harmony with you, but we didn't fancy you. We wanted to live apart from you. And, and you could have left us to your own destructive, to our own destructive ways. You, you, you could have damned us. You, you could have ignored us. You could have turned your back on us. But instead, you came after us. You pursued us. The holy pursuing the unholy. The divine pursuing the human. The sinless pursuing the sinner. It's unexplainable, unimaginable, indescribable, your pursuit of those who spurned you. What, what mercy that the love of God is active, not stationary. What grace that the image of God is merely defaced, not erased. Please come hard after us in this text. Pursue us with these verses. We are in desperate need to be pursued. This is our corporate plea. Amen. He hasn't spoken to his father in three years. Not a text, not a call, not a card. No communication through a, a homing pigeon or a messenger boy. He hasn't stepped foot in his hometown. He, he's missed the last three family Thanksgiving meals. His father refuses to speak to him. He's been banished. See... He killed his half-brother for what his brother did to their sister. And he's been on the run ever since. His name is Absalom. You, you could call this a self-imposed exile. Absalom didn't go home because he knew he wouldn't be welcomed home. He killed the golden child, dad's favorite and he expects nothing short of the death penalty if he steps foot inside the city limits of Jerusalem. He heard how long his dad, the king, mourned the death of his oldest son. News spread quickly. That the king has ripped his clothes, covered himself in ashes, crying in the streets. King David's been mourning for three years. He can't shake it. He can't get over the death of his son. He can't forgive Absalom for killing him. He can't let it go. He can't move forward. He doesn't want to move forward. He will not let go of the bitterness. He holds on to that resentment. He cherishes it. He pets it. He feeds it. He sleeps with it. For three years, King David refused to go after his banished son. He's a father refusing to pursue his son. 
It's not like he doesn't know where he's located. <laughs> he knows. Absalom is 80 miles away living with his maternal grandfather. He's been 80 miles away for three years. For three years, he's been on the other side of Nashville. For three years, he's been in Owensboro. David, you, you couldn't take a horse-drawn chariot over there? No. He's dead to me. When families are estranged, it can be difficult. When families are estranged, it can be difficult. Someone must step in and mend this particular family rift. Someone must bring the two parties together. There's division in the family. Who will work for reconciliation? Verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. The preposition translated, is, it's one word in Hebrew, the preposition translated went out to is better translated against. Against is one of the many ways this Hebrew word is translated in the Bible. I don't think David was thinking about Absalom in a positive light. A, 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 a better translation here is that his heart was against Absalom. His heart wasn't longing for him. His heart harbored anger and resentment toward him. Joab, David's nephew, sees the family division and, and knows this is not good. He, he's concerned it's jeopardizing the dynasty. King David is getting older. Some scholars contest we are within 10 years of David's death here. Now, Joab doesn't know that. But he knows David is aging and there is no appropriate succession plan in place. Joab sees the ongoing antagonism as a problem. Well, what if David dies? He's around 68 years old. There's no contingency plan. The oldest son is exiled. This could be a mess. Joab was a loyalist and a pragmatist. Always ready to act in the best interest of the kingdom as he saw it. The heir apparent has lost claim to Israel's throne and he needs to be brought home. Joab is afraid to broach the matter with the king himself. So he comes up with a plan. He's convinced the safest course of action to reconcile the two parties is by... Verse 2. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Joab hires this woman who lives 10 miles away in a small village. She is the wise woman of Tekoa. Wise meaning she's skilled in her work. She's an actress. Joab says, I want to hire you. I've got a starring role for you. Okay, what is it? I want you to play a mourning woman 
wearing the full garb, of course. And I need you to go to the king, tell a fictitious story so that he will do what I want. Well, well what is it that you want him to do? I, I want him to bring his son Absalom out of exile. Now, do, do you want the job or not? Do you have the money or not? Oh, I've got the money. Here, here's the money. It looks like it's all there. Let, let me start working on my costume and I'll be back tomorrow looking like a devastated widow. Is this, is this the script? I'll have it internalized by the morning. The narrator does not let us read the script before we see her performing the script. We just see it worked out on the big screen. The next morning, she meets Joab in full costume. She, she's dressed in black, a long dark veil covering her head. She looks like she's been mourning for a long time. Joab says, wow, you look terrible. Just awful. Well, that's the role, isn't it? Do, do you have your lines memorized? I'm the consummate professional. If, if the plan can be worked, I'll work it. Well, lady, it's a, it's a good plan. I believe a woman can change the king's mind. It's happened before. Abigail talked, to him, talked him out of killing her husband. See, David has a soft spot for women. Joab brings the actress to the palace and with unmatched dramatic skill, she walks like a devastated widow into the king's court. Now, remember, she's going to a king who is also in mourning. It's been three years since his prized son was murdered but he's still mourning his death. His clothes may not be in mourning, but his heart is in mourning. His kingly robe may not be ripped, but his kingly heart is. This is a sad woman approaching a sad king. She's a pitiful sight and a talented actress. She fell on her face and cried, Oh, king, help! David recognizes this is no formulaic plea. This is an end of your rope, brokenhearted begging. Verse 5. And the king said to her, what is your trouble? She answered, alas, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons and they quarreled with one another in the field. There, there was no one to separate them. And one struck the other and killed him. Now, David is not seeing this as an unusual case. He's, he's the king of Israel, but also the judge in Israel. People bring cases to him, and he makes a ruling. His throne room is also the courtroom. This is a common experience for him. Maybe the fourth or fifth case he's ruled on that day. David is the Supreme Court. This award-winning actress tells David... I'm a destitute widow. I've found myself with no husband, no protector, no provider. I'm powerless and I'm begging you for protection. I've lost my husband and my son. King, I had, I had two boys. But they got to fighting in the field and one killed the other. They've always been hotheads. 
They never could restrain their tempers. There was no one around to step in between them. David interrupts, ma'am, that's sad. But I can't bring your husband back or your son back. What, what can I do for you? She begins to lay out her request. My whole family clan ganged up on me and demanded I deliver my son over to death. But I would be left with no husband, no sons, no heir. I'd be destitute. King gets the problem of lineage. They would be destroying the one remaining heir. My, my husband would have no representative among the future generations. This would be the extinction of our family line. It, King, it would be a horrible misfortune. They want to snuff out the only spark of life left in me, bringing an end to my husband's name and depriving me of male protection. It would be open season on me. Someone will take possession of my property, my house, my land, and maybe my body. Church, this is what she wants. She wants the king to set aside the ordinary demands of the law that call for the death of a murderer. The, the family clan isn't actually doing anything incorrectly. They are obeying the laws of the land, the laws of Moses. In, in fact, Numbers chapter 35 verse 21 reads, He who struck the blow, that's killed another person, He who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. Numbers 35, 31. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. She's asking for the killing to go unavenged. She's asking David to break the law. How, how do you think David should rule? You think he should just let murderers go? Ignore the very laws that God gave to govern the nation? Would you want a judge to let the murderer off the hook? David has done this before. He failed to put Joab to death when he murdered someone in cold blood. Look at verse 8. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. David, David has to be thinking of, of another sibling rivalry that happened years before. Cain and Abel, where one brother killed another brother in the field, striking similarities between these two brothers and the world's first two brothers. This actress of Tekoa lived some distance from Jerusalem which made it difficult to research or inquire of the facts of her case. David told the woman, I'll consider it. Go home and I'll send someone to let you know my decision. But she will not let this conversation stop. I, I need more assurances, king. Give me something ironclad. Iron she, she plays her part brilliantly. Now, remember, this is a parable. She's not telling a real account. This is a fictitious son and a fictitious case. There's no real desperation. But she's making King David feel like there is. King David responds, I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. 
But she's not dismissed quite so easily, however. She goes to him for a third time, verse 11. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son not be destroyed. We know the Torah permitted the avenger of blood to take down and kill the, to track down and kill the murderer. We, we read that earlier. The blood avenger was, was someone in the community tasked to carry out this deed. She's saying, King, I, I'm very afraid of this man. I want you to take an oath that he will not be allowed to kill my son or harm me when I do not reveal where my son is hiding. Something, King, that will be binding. Swear, promise, take an oath, do anything publicly so I will have some guarantees. Beloved, you need to see this. She's making this request. The demand for love should trump the demand for justice. This is what she is contesting. She's contesting that the demand for love should trump the demand for justice. Look at verse 11b. King David said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. David granted her this request. He says, yes, I agree. The demand for love should trump the demand for justice. It's granted. She gets what she wants from the king. Like a talented actress, she has the audience in the palm of her hand. The audience here being the king. She's able to garner royal sympathy. The mourning king feels for the mourning widow. He, he's emotionally involved in this family, in this case, in this woman. And he hasn't put it together yet, but they have a lot in common. She had lost a son. David had lost a son. Her son was murdered. David's son was murdered. Her other son murdered him. David's other son murdered him. Then verse 12. The woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. Now she's using submissive language common in the ancient Near East when you're in the presence of royalty. King David said, Speak. And then she begins to turn the screw on David. Verse 13. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, would you, would you notice these next four words? The king convicts himself. For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. Inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. See what happened? King David... Are you saying that you will show compassion to my murderous son? But you will not show compassion to your murderous son? The trap snaps shut. This is the second thou art the man moment in the book. Remember when Nathan did the same thing? He approached David saying he needed judgment on a case. It wasn't a real case. It was a fictitious story. It was a parable. David ruled against the man in the parable and by doing so condemned himself. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, and I'm David. 
But as you dig a little deeper into this parable, you find out that this is a poor parody of the first parable. Her parable isn't as clean as Nathan's. There's holes in it everywhere. In her parable, the, the killer son is only guilty of manslaughter. David's son Absalom was guilty of more premeditated first-degree murder. In her parable, there was only one son left. But in David's family, there were many other sons besides Absalom. Lady, there are holes in your parable everywhere. And there are no holes in David's, in Nathan's parable. Plus, this parable wasn't delivered by the lips of a prophet, but by the lips of an actress. This parable didn't come from the heart of God, but from the heart of Joab. Joab is trying to play the role of God. But he's no God. This actress is trying to play the role of Nathan. But she's no Nathan. A.W. Pink says Nathan's parable was the Lord's work. And this parable is Satan's. She's continuing, she continues to speak to David in verse 14. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. King, you, you know spilled water is irreversible. It soaks into the soil. You can never retrieve the water back into the glass. Spilled water is irreversible and so is the murder of your son. We, we can't go back and change what happened. So why address the problem? Slaying the murderer can't bring back the victim. What is done cannot be undone. Plus, God wouldn't take his life. He would choose love over justice. God would work out a way to get the exile back. The reader is left wondering, would God choose love over justice? What's shocking to me in verses 15 through 17 is that she didn't say to David, Hey, I tried to Nathan you. I tried to parable you. No, nothing of the sort. She attempts to keep up the ruse. She goes back into her story, further elaborating on the details. King, I dared to come to you. I threw myself at the mercy of the court. The avenger of blood is making my life miserable, even threatening me. He's telling me he will cut my finger off if I don't tell him where my son is. And David is a bit confused. He's like, lady, give it up. I know this story is a parable. The trap snapped shut. I'm not sure why you are continuing this ruse. Verse 19. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. David's suspicions are confirmed. He knew Joab had to be mixed up in this. 
The king calls Joab into the courtroom. We actually never hear of this woman again. She's gone from the Bible from here on out. And surprisingly, David does not give Joab one word of rebuke. He simply says, all right, I'll do it. Bring the boy back. Verse 22. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king. And that the king has granted the request of his servant. Joab travels 80 miles. He brings Absalom back. And the son Absalom thinks this is going to be a Mephibosheth situation. I've seen David do this before. The king sends for me and, and now he brings me and puts me at his table. However, the king has special instructions for his son Absalom. Verse 24. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. For he is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Do you see here that Absalom is not permitted to see the king? David refuses to see him. I don't want to see your face. David will bring him back to Jerusalem, but he's not going to bring him back to the family table. He can't quite bring himself to go that far. He has compassion, but up to a point. This amounted to a house arrest. Absalom had to stay, had to stay within a certain distance of his own house. He wasn't allowed to go on the other side of town where the king lived. We've witnessed in the text so far a long-veiled actress willing to look awful. That's verses 1 through 24. A long-veiled actress willing to look awful. Now, a long-haired son wanting to look handsome. Verses 25 through 33. We, we now get a closer look into this son the heart of Absalom, the character of Absalom. And, and this whole chapter really sets up for what's coming in, in, in the coming chapters. Look at verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. He's tall, dark, and handsome. From the sole of his foot to the top of his head, there are no blemishes. That's a mirrorism showing two polar extremes. It's meant to convey he was as close to perfect physically as you could get. The words without blemish were used of animals acceptable for sacrificing to the Lord. It, it meant there's nothing wrong with his skin. He has no acne, no balding, no wrinkles, perfect jawline, perfect blue eyes, perfect build. He's a stud and he knows it. We get the impression from the next verse that Absalom is totally taken up in his own appearance. Verse 26. And when he cut the hair of his head, then a parenthesis, for at the end of every year he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. In parenthesis, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. He had long, luxurious locks. His hair was the envy of every man and the attraction of every woman. There were two reasons for cutting your hair in Israel. Give it to God in a Nazarite vow or enter a state of ceremonial cleanness before the Lord. 
Neither seems to be what Absalom did. He carried a certain vanity about his hair. He delights in his beauty. He held a public ceremony for every haircut. The, the cut hair weighed five pounds. That's a thick head of hair. Look at how much hair I can grow. He loves himself. He's, he's the Old Testament Fabio. Remember when David told the widow, not a hair of your son's head will fall to the ground? Interesting. Hey, David, your son Absalom is having his annual haircutting ceremony on the other side of town. The streets will be filled. You coming? He rolls his eyes. I will not go see my son's hair fall to the ground. Verse 27. There was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. We have here three unnamed sons and one named daughter. Weird. Very unusual for this culture. Jesus had named brothers and unnamed sisters. We have the opposite here. Absalom named his daughter Tamar after his sister. Perhaps Tamar, his sister, helped raise Tamar, his daughter, they were in the same house for a time before the banishment took place. Verse 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. For two years, Absalom lived in a state of limbo. Lived in the same city as his father, but not allowed to see his father. In the land, but outside the family. No family reunions, no royal events. He spent Three years banished 80 miles away. Now, two years banished 80 yards away for a total of five years of separation. He's embarrassed by his exclusion, and he's had enough. Absalom sent for Joab, who originally brought him back to Jerusalem. Joab, you will remember, tricked the king into bringing the banished one back. T Tell Joab I want to see the king, Absalom said. Joab didn't come. He sent a second time, Joab, come and meet me. I want to speak with the king. I want to see the king's face. I want to be reinstated as an heir. Still nothing. Joab ghosted him. Verse 30. Then Absalom said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine. And he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Absalom's anger explodes. You don't return my call, I'll burn your house down. Seems a bit much, Absalom. <laughs> I'm just not sure the reaction is in proportion to your offense. In contemporary terms, Joab doesn't respond to, to Absalom's text or calls. And I can understand the frustration. Sarah and I are, are building a house now. And when the contractors don't return my calls... I've considered burning their house down. <laughs> it's scary how much I am like Absalom. Quick to overreact. Extremely handsome. <laughs> Long hair man burning a field. Sound familiar? Samson. Samson had long hair and he burned a field. Absalom thinks he's a Samson. But he's no Samson. Verse 31, 
Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? The strategic arson had its intended effect. Absalom gets a knock at the door. It's Joab. Why did you burn my John Deere combine? Now let me remind you who Joab is. He's no pushover. No one crosses Joab in any way, shape, or form. Just ask Abner, who has a dagger in his chest. Joab is a warrior. He's been a warrior his whole life. He kills people for a living. If you are a rival or a threat to Joab, you die. It's as simple as that. But here, he lets it go. He can't kill the king's son. That would jeopardize the welfare of Israel. Plus, he's the one who wanted David to bring him back. Verse 32. Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would have been better for me to be there still. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Joab, I didn't come back to Jerusalem to be snubbed by the king. I don't think I did anything wrong. If I did, then let it play out. But right now, I'm neither banished nor reconciled. Put me before the king. If he kills me, he kills me. But I can't continue living like this. Let's have resolution here. If he wants me to put me to death, just do it already. I'll stand before my father, and we will see if my father chooses justice or love. Verse 33. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Church, tension is building in the text. Will David punish or pardon? Will he kill or kiss Absalom? And the, the verse finishes, and the king kissed Absalom. Well, that's a nice little tidy bow on the story. It looks like everything is back to normal. It looks like the relationship is destroyed, uh, restored. The, the division is gone. The family is reconciled. But looks can be deceiving. This is nothing more than formal telegraph behavior for the cameras. Nothing has changed between these two. They did not forgive one another. They did not work through their problems. They just ignored them. This is peace faking, not peace making. David reinstated Absalom with a kiss. He's no longer on the outside. He's back at the table, back eating Thanksgiving dinner with the family. But this is not the kiss of a loving father. This is the kiss of an impersonal king. It's a political kiss, a sign of acceptance. You are safe. You are off the hook, but you are not back in my heart. This is not true reconciliation. Now that's the exposition. I'll give you four take-homes before we leave our text. Four take-homes. Take-home number one. Repentance is necessary for reconciliation. Repentance is necessary for reconciliation. A lot of scholars try to draw a parallel here with the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament. 
the, the son came home and the father covered him with kisses. Well, they say David should have done the same. Cover him with kisses. Forgive your son. But the difference between the New Testament prodigal and the Old Testament prodigal is repentance. Absalom was not repentant. Two rebel sons, both came home, but only one came home repenting. This prodigal son comes home in body, but not in heart. This becomes evident in the next chapter. Absalom never expresses repentance or remorse for taking his brother's life. David and Absalom choose to fake reconciliation. Fake it. Like Absalom, some of you have not spoken to your father in three years. There's division in your family. Estranged family members. Broken friendships. Broken relationships. All these are very difficult. But faking reconciliation is not the answer. Repentance is necessary for true reconciliation. You need to keep repenting in your home. Keep repenting to your parents. Keep repenting to your spouse. Keep repenting to your brothers and sisters. When there is no repentance, it's a toxic home. You don't hold on to wrongs. You communicate with one another. The gospel propels you to do this. Now let's change gears for a bit. No true reconciliation without repentance. That's true of Absalom with his earthly father. And it's true of you with your heavenly father. Take home number two. Delayed justice sets the stage for compromise justice. Delayed justice sets the stage for compromise justice. David ignores God's justice and creates his own. Instead of putting his son to death, he simply exiled him in the same city. His punishment is, he can't see my face. He delayed justice and therefore it resulted in compromised justice. And you say, Kyle, are you telling me David should have killed his son? I'm saying that was the law. And Absalom will cause tremendous hurt and pain to David and Israel in the coming chapters. David made a habit David made a habit of not obeying the word of God when it came to his family members. He didn't obey it with Amnon, his son. He didn't obey it with Joab, his nephew, when he killed an innocent man. He came to a place, David came to a place where he upheld God's law for everyone but his own family members. When you wait to do the right thing, you will end up compromising somewhere down the line. Take home number three. You are not trapped between the demands of justice and the demands of love. You are not trapped between the demands of justice and the demands of love. Throughout this chapter, there's tension between justice and love. Uh, the long-veiled woman told David, you can only choose one. The long-haired son said, I'll take either, but give me one. They, they each place justice and love in opposition to one another. But are they? If you meet the demands of justice, does that mean you're not loving? If you're loving, does that mean you cannot meet the demands of justice? Justice and love do not meet in our text. 
Do they ever meet? There is a place where justice kissed love at Calvary. On the cross, love and justice were in perfect harmony. When God forgives, it's not at the expense of justice. He doesn't suspend justice for the sake of love. No, he doesn't suspend it. He satisfies it. The old hymn says, On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world and love. When God saves you, he doesn't satisfy the demands of love and let justice go begging. No, the justice your sins deserved were laid on Christ at Calvary. Take home number four. Jesus is a better David because when he brings the banished one home, he doesn't keep him at a distance. Jesus is a better David because when he brings the banished one home, he doesn't keep him at a distance. The banished one does not remain an outcast. When God forgives you, he will not keep you at a distance. David gives us in the story a false restoration. Jesus gives us a true one. King David refused to go after his banished son. King Jesus never relents pursuing his banished sons and daughters. He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Father, we look at this text and we see you working in the mess. We see you simultaneously giving David the consequences of his sin and at the same time fulfilling a promise to him. The only thing messier than this situation where there is sin on both sides is our situations where there is often sin on both sides. Give us wisdom where to repent and when and where to call for it. Father, King David refused to punish his guilty son. But you willingly punished your innocent son. You did it so that the banished one might come home. Praise your holy name. Amen.